Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 this morning. In our worship, we focused on some older songs that point our attention to the cross, to remind us of grace and mercy, some of the very things that Peter addresses in his text, particularly as he's writing to the churches that were experiencing this shift of of theological thinking. Error had entered in. There were false teachers that were abounding. They were questioning the eschatological return of Jesus. Uh, they, were, they were questioning some of the very elemental things of the faith. They were teaching people how to live in the flesh. You know, sometimes we do that in our worship, and we appeal to the flesh rather than the mind. Sometimes it's, it's a good thing to get a little tap to your foot as you sing worship songs, but sometimes it's also important just to reflect and remember, and particularly today as we come to the Lord's Supper and the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it's important that, that we remember some things in the midst of really challenging times, uh, politically uh, challenging times by way of geopolitical conflict, uh, challenging times when it comes to um, many families being impacted by the passing of loved ones over the last a couple of weeks, in fact. And as we gather here, we're reminded of really what matters most in life. It's important that we do this from time to time. In fact, it's even commanded in the Scripture. So our reflection today will be all towards the celebration of what Christ has done for us as we maximize His mercy uh, our sins, though they're many, His mercy is more. Did you ever stop to think about that? <laughs> his mercy is more. So what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? What did Paul say? Ridiculous. God forbid to somehow in His mercy and somehow by His grace, the believer has to come to a place in life, and that place isn't a location necessarily. That place isn't uh, an arrival necessarily. It's and a holistic place in our hearts and our minds and our thinking where, where our hearts are simply at rest, even though everything around us is restless. And I believe that's really what Peter is, is addressing in large part in this text as he speaks of the day of the Lord that will indeed come. If you take your Bibles and go with me to Second Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read the whole passage of Scripture. We'll focus on these verses on your screen immediately, but follow along as I begin in the first verse of this chapter, where Peter, after calling out the false teachers, naming their character flaws, calling them for some of the erroneous false teaching and heresy that they are bringing into the church, now writes to them and believers at the same time with a warning and an encouraging word of blessing. He says, now, this is now the second letter, verse 1, that I am writing to you, beloved. He's writing in a very pastoral kind of manner. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished." By the same word, the heavens and the earth are now, now that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until this day of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless us as we reflect upon a few passages in this text this morning. Pray that you would through your Holy Spirit, to remind us of the things that we've studied in Second Peter, to remind us of the things that we are studying in Sunday school and the adult Bible fellowship hour and eschatology, but remind us most of your grace and your mercy. Remind us most that there's a place of security in a world that is spinning out of control. Remind us that at times when our lives and our minds and our relationships, and our world is restless, that there's a special place of peace for those who know You, those who have been called to peace, and, and those who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ through His mercy and grace on the cross of Calvary. And encourage us, as Peter encouraged the recipients of this letter, to be on guard against twisted truth and the perversion of truth and the turning to our own sensual desires and away from that truth, and find us living lives indeed, as the writer points out, of holiness and godliness. But I sense that in our world today, and in my relationship with so many people today, including your people, there's an absence of peace. I pray that the peace of God would be known by all, that we be reminded of the rest that we have in Christ alone, that we would find a a balance in our lives, not to the left or to the right, but to the center of what You desire for us, and that we would continue to wait with anticipation, knowing that You will set the crooked straight and everything's going to be okay. As these recipients of the letter are encouraged, I pray that our people would be encouraged we sit down at the table of remembrance, I pray that we would know that our encouragement comes in Christ alone. And I ask that even the words of Paul would become real to us. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until He comes. And even so, come, Lord Jesus. But until such time, give us rest. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look to the text briefly this morning, especially in verses 11 through 13, Peter is wrapping up his introduction of this eschatological confusion, the confusion that says, well, listen, all of these promises were made by Christ, and they were made by the apostles, but they're now dying, and they haven't come through. So, so, so why should we believe that Jesus is coming again? In fact, He's not. And what they had in mind in the text is if Jesus wasn't coming back, there would be no accountability. And if you can erase the accountability that every human being has to a holy and righteous God, you can begin to design your life the only way that you desire to, according to your sensual lust. In other words, you can do whatever you want. There are no consequences. 
You'll never have to answer for it. There's never going to be any time in which you stand before the presence of the God of all creation and give account. And Peter says, that's just not true. The false teachers of today are promising some of those very same things or minimizing His return in some ways. They're perverting the truth of this text and the truth of the coming of Christ in an opposite direction. And they're telling us, who cares what's going on in the world? Who cares what's going on in your family? Who cares what's going on at work? Just sit back and wait and listen for the sound of the trumpet. I'm not sure that's helpful either. So as Peter writes to these believers, he tries to sort it out a little bit, and we'll try and do that briefly as we come to the table of remembrance. He reminds the people of God that, indeed, God did come in judgment once before, and the worlds as we know them were well, deluged by water and the great flood, and, and now he says the truth that you heard from Christ and His apostles is we're waiting for a second time of judgment, but this time instead of water, it's going to be a judgment of fire. There'll be celestial bodies dissolved, and the world as we know it will be remade. And then he encourages the believers, beginning of verse 8, about the mercy of God as a pastor, he says, dear loved ones, remember that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He's not on your time schedule. He doesn't have to go by your clock. He doesn't have an Apple watch that reminds you what you're supposed to be doing. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He knows the end from the beginning. And trust me, he's got everything under control. We sit and we wring our hands and we cry out for him to do something almost with the notion that he's not doing anything, but you're wrong. He's exercising great mercy and compassion to a lost and dying world and to these people of his own who are led astray by false doctrine. And his patience is for the purpose of those coming to repentance. His patience is for his work to be fulfilled and accomplished. His patience is to achieve his perfect will that some might be saved and others would come to judgment, and when he sees it to be the right time, and that day of the Lord comes upon us, those who have been deceived will not be looking, and it will be like a thief, and there will be a dissolution of the universe as we know it. And we finished last week, verse 10, by saying, the works that are done on it, meaning this world, will be exposed. What a daunting phrase. For the believer, we will answer for how we lived our life. Was it in godliness? Was it in holiness? Or was it in sensual pleasures and pursuing twisted truth? For those in Christ Jesus at that glorious resurrection of the rapture, we will soon after that stand before the bema seat judgment of Christ. And the Scriptures teach us we'll all give an account of how we lived our life and served our time here on this earth. That's a serious matter. I consider it often. I look at what He's called me to do, and I realize I'm not up to the task, Lord. Thank goodness I don't have to be. He is. And He uses simple people and all their struggles to remind us and to remind God's people and to remind ourselves when we look in the mirror that we're not home yet and there's still work to be done, but His mercy is everlasting, His grace is sufficient, and when I stand before Him, there is no chance I will be cast out of His presence, so shall I ever be with the Lord. But I ought to be concerned about how I'm spending my time today because I will give an account of every idle word. We don't like that so much, but it's real. Peter says, don't, don't forget that. All works will be exposed in a horrific fashion. We need to think in these terms sometimes because they're sobering terms that, in my opinion, will change how you look at other people, particularly the unbeliever. The end of the millennial reign of Christ, there will be another resurrection. And it's a resurrection of all human beings who have died outside of Christ. And they will be resurrected and gathered together at the great white throne judgment of God 
for the dissolution of the universe, the creation of a new heaven and new earth. They will be held accountable for their sin once and for all in a second death kind of fashion. And the sea gives up its dead, and all people of all ages outside of Christ are resurrected from the dead to stand before the judgment, the sobering great white throne of God. And they will experience not just physical death and the temporal torment, the rejection of the message of the gospel. They will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, and that is the second death. Can I remind you this morning, these are the people that you work with. These are the people that you do business with. These are your neighbors. Sadly, it's our family. We look at this world of ours, and if we're just going to sit back and wait for the glorious return of our Savior and not be motivated to do something about it, how shall they ever hear if no one is sent and no one speaks the truth to them? We will give an account in our security, and they will give an account for their eternity for every work on earth that is done will be exposed. You know, for some Christians, there's this notion, with some fire and brimstone pastors, good, they're going to get exactly what they deserve, crushes my spirit, crushes my spirit. That's what I deserved. That's what you deserved. This is eternal in nature. You must tell them the truth instead of simply waiting for the end. And we must wait in patience as God exhibits His grace and His mercy until the day of the Lord comes. So, while we wait, what is it that He calls us to do? Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, He is saying in essence what He just said. I'm telling you again, this is happening. This is coming. This isn't some wish. This isn't some dream of mine. It is going to be a reality. All of these things will come to pass. A judgment will take place. These, these, this world will, will be dissolved as we wait. What sort of people ought you to be? a difficult balance that comes to life sometimes. We, we want to we sit back in a good way and trust that God's got this and everything's going to be okay. And yet in the parables, that Olivet Discourse and in other areas, it also says we're to be working diligently when, when all this stuff comes to pass. So, so what is it? Do we sit around and wait or are we, are we working diligently towards His, His coming and return in preparation for all of these things that are spoken of in this time? Well, I think the answer is both. I do not believe that God blesses idle hands, not for a second. I don't believe that God blesses workaholism, but I'm not sure. But if in context, we, we've made hard work and effort and determination a bad thing in the church today. We should just rest in the Lord. Everything's going to be fine. I, I'm not, I don't find that in Scripture. In fact, I'm warned about wasting talents and the opportunities that God presents to you. But, but there's, a, there's a paradox there, and there's a fine line of balance between those things. Some, some of the most godly people that I know were diligent and busy all of the time in the work of the Lord. But also, in times of reflection, they're the most unshakable people that I know because they are resting in the hope of the return of their Savior. I hope that I can learn to be both of those things, resting, yet diligent, unapologetically diligent for that truth. Well, how do we do that? He says, you ought to be the kind of people whose lives are displayed through holiness and godliness. What, what does he mean by those two things? When he speaks of holiness, he's talking about forms of behavior. He's talking about the choices that you make in life. He's talking about external actions and behaviors that are rooted in the internal change that comes in Christ alone. 
He's saying somehow we must live soberly and righteous in this present age in holiness. Peter addressed this in his first letter, verse 15, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As you see all of this taking place, as you respond to the false teachers, as you respond to the chaos and the restlessness of the world, what ought pe- kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be holy people, living lives for the glory of God. Not holy people, perfect, because that's like chasing after the wind. You understand that, don't you? Holy people quick to cry out to God for forgiveness. Holy people quick to check their tongues and their actions and their behaviors so that nothing undermines their faith and the promise of the return of a Savior. Holy people, through their eternal, external actions, show that they are different than the world. This is where it gets ugly, particularly in our conservative circles. We we want to put some words to that holiness. And we want to say, well, that means this. And it goes back to the old age of fundamentalism that you don't dance and you don't go to movies and you don't drink alcohol and et cetera and et cetera, and that was bankrupt. And a lot of people learned to live by those rules, but they never were introduced to the Savior. But these false teachers were teaching the opposite. And I think some of the false teachers of our day are doing this too. God created you this way. Just pursue the desires that He's planted in your life, whether they be sexual desires or relationship desires. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have your best life now. That's not in the Scripture. We wrestle with with some of these truths of holiness. Holiness is God-like behavior. And if the standard is absolute holiness, I think there's a little work to be done in all of our lives. How about you? all of our lives. He's calling us to consciously live our lives in in a pagan age that is spinning out of control for the glory of God so that these false teachers have no opportunity to say, see, look at those people over there. But He also calls us to live lives, ought to. There's an expectation of that. He is saying, this is your obligation. Isn't it funny we don't often talk about this in, in, in the gospel accounts. Come to Jesus, He'll take away your sins, He'll give you your best life now, and, and then you just go live your life. That's not true. Peter is saying, you have an obligation as the people of God to live holy lives and godliness. It's that godliness, the internal heart attitudes, that reverence, the respect for for the truth of God's Word, and that internal condition that bleeds out in our behaviors. Unfortunately, in many of our churches of a conservative nature, we want to stamp out the behavior and never deal with the heart, and it never works that way. If you're struggling with behaviors, it's a spiritual issue. It's a vertical issue. You, you have to address that first because in your flesh you are unable to remedy that all by yourself. Only God can do that. The power of the gospel, the person of Christ, and the dwelling presence of His Spirit. In the midst of all of this impending doom, live lives of holiness and godliness, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And Peter's already told these believers how to prepare for that. We won't go through this text again, but in chapter 1, he says, listen, you had to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. If you want to be living these holy, godly lives, you need to be on this, this arc of spiritual maturity. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, 
I love that, and increasing. <laughs> You're not home yet. You never arrive anywhere. We continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. If you're not, it's keeping you from being effective. It's making you ineffective and unfruitful. Lack of knowledge and understanding what it is that God expects of you. So as you are equipped and you have this roadmap toward holiness and godliness, you, you're, you're waiting with great expectation for sure, but you're waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Some would say that hastening the coming is the busier we get, the quicker God will get here. You must not have read the prior verses. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. He's just saying, don't get lazy. Unfortunately, there's a tendency of believers in difficult times to pull out of the world entirely and to go into our little enclaves and, and, and share our theology and our concerns about how bad the world is, but we've removed then the salt and the light that God has intended us to be in, in, in our world. He's not calling us to, to separate and come apart as we're waiting for that day. He's calling us to be engaged, to be involved, to, to be busy in the work of the Lord, because the day of God is coming. Now, some would think this is just the same way of him saying in the prior verses the day of the Lord, but those are two different times. The day of the Lord is the time of judgment and, and cleansing and the dissolution of this world. The day of God is what comes after that, where the believer receives their fullness of promise and, and where the believer understands this new heaven and new earth and the glory of our King. And it is that day of reward, is that day of tranquility, is that day that God rules. As we wait for it that day, we need to be aware that the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So what is it that you want us to do, Peter? He, he, he wants us to remember both sides of the equation. That's what he wants us to remember. What a blessed day in store for God's people. What a horrible day in store for the unbeliever. Live with those things and the fullness of… The, of awareness and be diligent. Because judgment is coming. Verse 13, but according to His promise, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The implication is that righteousness doesn't dwell on this earth. Perhaps if you've lived any length of time, you're well aware of that. But righteousness will prevail in the future. Every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but we're not there yet. So he's writing about the realities of the day of the Lord and the promises of the day of God, and he's saying, live according to the promise as you wait for the fulfillment of everything that he's told you for the future. This new heaven and new earth are, are, are that, that new creation, new quality of creation where righteousness is removed, and, and even the world uh, that, that, that we see and know and experience that is now groaning in the pains of childbirth will no longer be groaning. And it will be an environment redone, and, and it will be a permanent home of righteousness, a permanent residence of, of the righteous of, of, of the ages, a time in which in the day of God He fulfills all of His promises. Therefore, He says in verse 14, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Be diligent. Do something. Do something. What something, Pastor Jim? Read the text. Holiness and godliness. Do something. What, Pastor Jim? Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do something. Do what? And add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and grow up. Grow up spiritually. Go out spiritually. Do the work of the Lord in diligence. Be found by Him without spot or blemish, and be at peace. So, I'll wrap up my comments before we go to the table. 
this be at peace is a really interesting statement and reminds me of a number of things in Scripture. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 gives an illustration of Israelites going through, coming into the promised land, this, this land of rest, and he talks about rest, and some of what he talks about is Sabbath rest, but, but I think there's a bigger and a greater concept that he speaks of as well. In my estimation, there are a lot of believers who, who don't understand what, what the believer's rest is. Let me give you some illustrations of that if I, if I could. By the way, when we talk about the believer's rest and we go back to the Reformers and some of their doctrine of, of the believer's rest, it, it is this special place in, in the life of a believer as they grow in grace and in knowledge, to the, they get to the, to the point that they can separate light from darkness and good from bad, and they have a pretty good grasp and handle on, on the world at large. But they've come to this time and place in their life where uh, Although they have a, a good impression or, or a good at least understanding of what's happening in their world, they have a better understanding of what's already happened to them in their lives. And as the world shakes around them, it reminds me of the language of the psalm writer that the, the mountains shake and fall into the midst of the sea. And what does he say in Psalm 46? Be still and know that I am God. That's the believer's rest. The believer's rest comes from knowing that God always does what's right in His own eyes, even if it doesn't make sense to us and doesn't seem right. The believer's rest comes when we wrestle with the doctrine of salvation, that God has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, and by implication hasn't chosen somebody else, and it keeps us up at night, and we say, we don't understand this, it doesn't seem to be fair, but a believer who grows in knowledge steps back and says, who am I to tell God what to do? I'm at rest that He is doing what's right in His own eyes. So many Christians today don't have that rest. Their God is too small. Their understanding too narrow. They haven't grown in grace and in knowledge. And those are the ones that these false teachers target. That's, that's what Peter's saying here. Do you know the rest that comes in Christ alone? You know the restlessness that this world brings, but you know the rest that comes in Christ alone. It doesn't mean that Christians don't get restless, and it doesn't mean that we don't have questions, and it doesn't mean that we don't have doubts, and it doesn't mean that we don't have shortcomings. The believer's rest does mean, though, that at the end of the day, there's a quietness in our heart, for our King sits on the throne, and He knows the end from the beginning and everything's going to be okay. What a paradox that is, because the world is not okay. When you grasp this bigger picture outside of this world, there's a place of rest where we stop wrestling with everything that we're wrestling with, and we learn to be still and know that He is God. I can tell you the times I've visited that place been spectacular. It's easy to take back those concerns, and it's easy to take back those worries, and it's easy to, to, to kind of turn away and say, I've got this now, God. I, I got it under control. We've got nothing under control. We must rest in Him. Great Augustine once said, our hearts are restless, and we'll always be restless until we find our rest in Him. Where's that rest come from? Perhaps a big portion of that rest. That's why we go through the obedient exercise of coming to this table of communion to remember the Lord's death till He comes. There is no rest in this world without Christ. There is no rest in this world without remembering. There is no rest in this restless world Unless you have a big God, a sovereign God, a glorious God, who one day will make all things new and is in the process of it right now in this time and place, even here in this worship center in Johnson City this morning. 
There's a place of rest that is rooted in the security that the believer has in Jesus Christ, and there is no security outside of Jesus Christ. Paul in Ephesians reminds the believers there, in Him, meaning Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him. And the moment of belief were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It is your inheritance, but you don't have it right now, but you can be quiet in your spirit. You can find the believer's rest. You can know the peace of God that passes all understanding because of the Spirit that resides in your heart today and the promise of tomorrow and the fulfillment of that promise is to the praise of His glory, Paul says in Ephesians 1, Peter saying the same thing. First book in First Peter 1, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Lord, you know what's going on down here? He says, I know and I'm guarding your faith until the appointed time. I am providing a rest that you can know, and I've secured that in my Son, Jesus Christ. And when it's time, all of the works on earth will be exposed, and when it's time, I will make all things new. This notion that we have it worse than any other generation is just a false notion. Every believer faces these challenges. May you know the believer's rests. May you find your security in the gospel alone. May you be guarded through faith until the completion of your salvation. And may you know that that day is coming and be diligent. So we reflect upon these truths and, and now come to this table of communion. I want to remind you, particularly with the numbers of people, at least that I'm associated and affiliated with, who have died in this past week. For me, it grants me a perspective that's needful and necessary sometimes. We come all here together. Sometimes we've got our life all together, and we don't want to ever talk about bad or troublesome things, but we all know bad and trouble. We all carry burdens, and we all have those who pass on before. I shared with you it was a burden of my heart as we went through chapter 2, because I know people that I'm just not sure about. And I, like you, am in need of the believer's rest and the confidence that I need to have that God did what was right in His own eyes. And i got to be okay with that. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm not. Maybe that's where you live in whatever storm you're in right now. There's a place called the believer's rest that gives shelter in the midst of a storm and quietness in the midst of chaos, and it comes in Christ alone. There's not a single person here who knows Christ the Savior has been here for any length of time that wouldn't say, yep, you're right. It's in Christ alone, Pastor Jim. <laughs> but it's one thing to say it, isn't it? Another to live it out. Called and commanded in Scripture to come on a regular basis to this table of remembrance. Because that's where the believer's peace comes from. This is what our security lies in. This is what grants us perspective, and, and maybe in a different way than you've thought before. It guards us. I go back to the first chapter of 1 Peter. 
by allowing us to come to this table and reminding us of what he's done for us guards us and it keeps our heart from from quitting and becoming despondent or walking away or being susceptible to these faults. It guards us because not only can we sing in Christ alone, we we can live it. May you know the believer's peace. May you know the security that comes in Christ alone. As we come to this table to partake, may the peace of God be upon you. And even for just a minute this morning, may He reveal a glimpse of that that you can't get enough of. And may you become diligent in your holiness and godliness, longing for only what He can give you in Christ. As we come to this table according to the Scripture, I would like to ask Bill Webb if he'd ask the blessing on the bread. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for this, this time of worship. Thankful for this time of communion, communion with you. Lord, as, as the words from the him on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross an emblem of suffering and shame Jesus I thank you today for suffering for me for suffering for us as we prepare to take this bread and examine ourselves we pray Lord that, that you will find us worthy that you would find us thankful Thankful for everything that you have done for us. Thankful for our salvation in you. And I just ask these things in your name. Amen.
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter, citing the words of the prophet Isaiah, writes, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. And Conover, would you ask the blessing on the cup? God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this time of remembrance, and we thank you for the blood that was spilt for us. We thank you for you taking our uh, penalty away. We pray that we would uh, also remember you every day, and not, not just today. That we would remember the things that you are doing, and that we would realize that we are striving to, for holiness, and that we will not uh, achieve that here, and we have not achieved it yet. We thank for all the things that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 writes, For in him, meaning Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In the same manner also when he had supped, Christ took the cup saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until He comes. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim and remember the Lord's death until he comes. Peter was teaching those who were in the midst of persecution and false teaching and perilous times that until he comes, be at rest. Know that you're secure and live lives of holiness and godliness. May it be so here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City. Father, thank you for this time. thank you for rest. We long for rest. We thank you for the security that we have in Christ. It is so needed. Because we're so feeble and frail. We thank you that we know the end from the beginning. The day of the Lord in the day of God, and we ask that you might make us diligent, and that you would give us the spiritual discernment to know what that looks like as we remain active here until you come. May you do a work in us and in this body, in our community, in our world for your glory alone. May you guard us and keep us and hold us in anticipation until all these things come to pass. 
as we live in holiness and godliness. Father, I pray that we would be concerned and weep with those that weep, rejoice with those that rejoice, and as a congregation, come along the side of those who are in need. As we take this benevolence offering to assist in those times of needs, I pray that you would bless the body as they give. I pray that you remind the recipient of your goodness. And I pray all of us might find that believer's rest in good times, challenging times, and the worst of times. May our hearts come to rest in you and you alone. Bless us as we take this benevolence offering. May it be for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.